Welcome to Ask the Pastors. I'm Pastor Sean Cole of Emmanuel Baptist Church. I'm joined by our youth pastor, uh, Andrew Hayes. We're glad to be here for another week of Ask the Pastors. And so, Andrew, how's your week been going? Been going pretty well. Enjoying some of the nice, warmer spring weather. Um, enjoying finishing finishing up our semester. How about yourself? Doing good. Just trying to stay sane during this coronavirus pandemic and just trying to figure out how we're going to move forward. So we're just praying and asking for the Lord's guidance as leaders on what happens next as far as reopening the church and all those good things. It's a very big decision we need to make. And so we're just uh, seeking the face of the Lord. So, well, let's just jump right in. Um, the first question has to do with a, a doctrine that Martin Luther and others would say uh, the church rises or falls on how you understand this doctrine. And it's the, the technical name of the doctrine is justification by faith alone. But the question is related to the idea of imputation. Now, I'm not talking about amputation where you cut off your arm or your leg. What I'm talking about is what, what is this whole idea of the imputation of Christ's righteousness uh, to the sinner, and what does that mean? And so let's actually, first of all, look at a passage of Scripture. Um, the whole book of Romans, especially chapters 3, 4, and 5, deal very specifically with this doctrine. But two Scriptures, I'm going to look at Romans chapter 4, and then I'm going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But let's first of all look at Romans chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. Uh, Paul writes this, Now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That's probably the clearest teaching that Paul gives on how we are saved. In verse 4, he says, Our salvation is not based upon working, doing works of the law, being good, obeying the Ten Commandments. As a matter of fact, in the actual world of, of labor and commerce and working, you go to a job and you get paid a wage. You get paid a salary because that's what's owed you. You worked so many hours a week. And so if you worked uh, 40 hours a week for free and didn't expect to get a paycheck, that would be a really weird reason to work. And so you work and you get paid. And so sometimes we carry in that idea into the spiritual realm and think, well, if I work or do enough or stack up enough good deeds, then somehow God owes me salvation or God owes me grace or God owes me a favor by how much I've worked. And Paul says that's not the way it works at all in God's economy. Verse 5, to the one who does not work but believes or trusts or has faith in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So we are saved by believing in Jesus Christ, faith alone. And when we believe or have faith or trust in Jesus, we are justified in the sense that God counts us as righteous. Now, imputation or that word counts as righteous, two realms. It comes from the realm of banking. And it comes from the realm of the legal system of that day. So let's first of all talk about the legal system. Um, God, as the eternal judge, 
looks down upon ungodly sinners. That's what the word says there. He justifies the ungodly. God, the judge, looks down upon ungodly sinners, all of us, and God sees our life. And then this is where the banking terminology comes in. He sees our life with a negative balance of sin because of our guilt probably like a negative bazillion dollars of debt that we owe. And there's no way that we can get out of debt because we are so much in sin. So even the, the good deeds we do could never get us out of that debt. And so because God is a judge in the courtroom, and because our accounting in our life is a negative, God makes a legal verdict. He makes a pronouncement in his courtroom. And the pronouncement upon our life is guilty, condemned, deserving of God's judgment. So something has to happen to us legally, forensically, judiciously, in order for that debt to be removed. And so there's no way that we can remove that debt ourselves. And so what happens is there's a means by which that debt is taken away. And the means by which that happens is faith. So here's what happens. When you trust or when you believe in Jesus, there's an there's a imputation or there's an accounting or there's a reckoning. Think of like debits and credits. Um, your sin is taken out of your account. Okay, so uh, debited out of your account is your sin, and that's transferred or that's reckoned or that's imputed to Jesus' account. So he takes upon your sin. So your balance is now at zero, which is good. You, you don't want to be in debt, but you, you don't want to walk around with zero in your bank. So the, the first aspect of justification is our sins are credited or imputed to Christ, and we have a zero balance. But we need to have a positive balance in order to be accepted before God. Now, we can't produce that positive balance. We can't do enough good. Again, we're ungodly. So Something from outside of ourself has to go into our account. And so it goes back the other way. The perfect righteousness of Jesus, the perfect life that he lived, is credited or accounted or imputed to us as if we live the life that Christ lived. Now, obviously, we're still ungodly, but in God's accounting terms, in God's courtroom, he now can look down as the judge upon our life, and he can make a new verdict. The new verdict he can make is not guilty, accepted, forgiven, because two things have happened. Our sins have been credited to Christ. Christ's righteousness has been credited or imputed or reckoned to us. Therefore, we are justified or declared not guilty. Now, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, let me just pull it up here real quick, if I can type fast enough. 2 Corinthians 5, I'm not 517, 521. Yeah. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, that's us on our behalf, he made him to be sin. That's the Father, treated Jesus as if he was a sin offering, who knew no sin, so Jesus was perfect. So that, okay, what's the so that? In Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So in that one passage of Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.21, you see imputation in both ways. Our sins were imputed or credited to Jesus so that through faith we might become the of God, Christ's righteousness might be credited to us. So imputation is basically the truth that our sins are credited to Jesus. 
His righteousness is credited to us in this great exchange that goes both ways, our sin out to Jesus, his righteousness in to our account. And based upon that outside or what the reformers would call alien or forensic or outside of our self-righteousness, God can now legally declare us to be not guilty. We're justified. Now, that's a one-time thing. You're not justified in degrees or in levels. Um, it's an instantaneous one-time unrepeatable act whereby God forever declares you or views you as not guilty, accepted, under no condemnation. You can't lose that justification. You can't have, you can't be more justified one day and less justified. It's a permanent position where you stand fully accepted before the very throne of God's justice because of the righteousness so that is the doctrine of imputation or justification by faith alone. Hmm. That's, that's a good word. It just remind, reminds me like when I was in, in my younger years, I really struggled as a, as a Christian with assurance of salvation because I would think, you know, a Christian wouldn't be behaving or thinking or saying, doing the things that I'm doing. And because of that, I felt, I remember one day when I was maybe like eight years old, I accepted Jesus into my heart to use that because that's what I, language I had at the time about six to eight times that day because I had sinned that day. So I felt like I needed to accept Jesus again. So until I understood that teaching of imputation, it really, I really struggled with assurance because of uh, my sin as a Christian. Yeah, and we'll address assurance here in just a moment. That'll be my second question. But I wanted to set it up with the first question because justification by faith alone is the basis for the, the second question I'm going to address. So, Andrew, why don't you go ahead and answer your, your first question? Yeah, so um, I'll go ahead and answer what I think is probably the, the, e the easier one first, and then we'll, I'll, probably, I'll save the harder one for, for later. So the easier one's about, um, is Jesus a martyr? was a question that I received uh, in, in youth group a while back. and like usual, it all depends on how you define your terms. Um, if you define martyr as somebody who dies for their faith, like anybody who dies for their faith, then you could say that Jesus was a martyr. But if you mean church martyr, traditionally, we would think of Stephen as the first martyr of the church. Uh, you can find that in Acts, in the book of Acts. So I just want to kind of point out, like, you know, again, it all kind of comes down to how you define your terms. So but I do think that the idea of Christian martyrs, just a couple of thoughts I jotted down about them. It's one of the reasons I believe in Christianity, because you look at many of the disciples who died because they preached Jesus, risen from the dead, and as our Lord and God. And they went to their graves with many opportunities to deny Jesus, but chose not to, which makes me trust that they were telling the truth. Um, so for me, church martyrs, especially the disciples, help remind me that my faith is based on truth. So I know that's kind of a short answer, but I think it's kind of worth mentioning that depending on how you define your term, you can say Jesus is a martyr or isn't a martyr. So I know kind of a shorter answer. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. Um, it depends on how you define martyr. Um, obviously, John 10 tells us that Jesus willingly to the cross on his own authority that he received from the Father, and Jesus is also God in the flesh, and so we would say his is the cross. It's the atonement of God the Son in the flesh dying for the sins of his people, and so it's not really Jesus dying for his faith. He is the, the, the ultimate sacrifice. It reminds me back many years ago when the Passion of the Christ came out. Mm -hmm. I have a family member who 
saw that family members, not a believer. And we talked about it afterwards. And this person was really moved by what Jesus did. And he kind of compared it to like William Wallace in Braveheart, willing to die for something he believed in, or, you know, saving Private Ryan, willing to, to die for a cause. And, and basically it was more of a, I look at Jesus with admiration as someone who suffered for a cause that he believed in. And, and I think you can admire, some people admire Jesus for quote unquote dying for a cause he believed in. But there's more than that because a lot of people have died for causes they believed in. Right. Jesus is the unique son of God who died on the cross for our sins and rose again as God in the flesh, as the Messiah. And so because of the resurrection, because of who Jesus is, then we as his followers, um, you know, God may call some to die for their faith, like we see in the early martyrs. Um, and so something that hopefully never happens, but there are people today in closed countries that do die for their faith. All right. Well, let me address the second question. The second, the first question that I asked is, how do you get saved? Okay. Justification by faith alone, imputation, Christ's righteousness. And so that's the question, how do I get saved? The second question I often have is, how do I know I'm saved? Or what happens when I doubt my salvation? Or I may not feel saved, or maybe after you sin big time, you wonder why in the world did I do that? Am I, am I truly saved? How do I know I'm saved? And so the question becomes, um, how do I have assurance that I am truly saved? Now, let me just first of all say this. One of the things that we don't do at Emmanuel is if somebody quote unquote prays to receive Christ or somebody trusts Christ for salvation, we as pastors have no permission to pronounce that person saved. Um, I grew up in a church culture where there was the altar call at the end of the service and you went forward and you said the sinner's prayer and then immediately you were turned around and presented as a believer in Christ because the pastor, you said the prayer of the pastor and he pronounced you saved. Um, we can't look into the heart of anybody to know if they're genuinely saved. And so we can't pronounce a person saved. What a person can do is if they show evidence of salvation and present themselves to us in the church, then the profession of faith is the baptism where they stand before believers and confess their faith in Christ. And that's publicly demonstrated in their profession of faith as baptism. But let's just talk about um, assurance of salvation uh, because there's a lot of things that we need to understand. Um, and first of all, let's just, let's just look at Romans 10, 9 through 11. Okay, let's just objectively look at what the Bible says. Romans 10, 9 through 11, famous passage of scripture. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. If you go down to verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a bona fide promise from scripture. That if you believe in Jesus, if you have trusted Christ for salvation, you believe that he's Lord, that he is Christ that died on the cross and he rose again, and you're personally putting your faith in him, the Bible says you will be saved. Not you might be saved or you may be saved. 
everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So there is first an objective reality that is true based upon whether you feel saved or not. So the first question I would say is, have you done that? I'm not looking at decisionism. A lot of times we look back at a point in time where you have to pinpoint the exact time you quote unquote asked Jesus in your heart and you got to know like I was nine years old and it was a VBS and you know what, what's that moment and if you don't remember that moment you're not safe. That's not the question I'm asking. The question is have you and are you trusting in Christ alone as your Savior and Lord? And if you are the Bible says, not me, but the Bible says, you will be saved. So there's an objective aspect to assurance of salvation that just says, based upon what the Bible says is true, you can be assured that you're saved based upon that, that minimum criteria of trusting in Christ alone for salvation, whether you feel like it or not, because there's going to be some days where you don't feel like it. Now, there's a second aspect. There's the subjective aspect. And what I mean by subjective is, okay, what are some evidences or some fruits that you can look at at your life that would help give you evidence that you are truly saved? So I would just say this. If you think you're saved and you claim to be saved, but you never read your Bible, you never pray, you never go to church, you never demonstrate love for brother, you don't have a hunger for God and for his truth, and your life looks pretty much like a worldly person where you're living in unrepentant habitual sin, subjectively, I could probably look at you and say, I don't know your heart, but there's some subjective evidence I'm looking at that shows that you may not be saved. Now, I can't look in your heart to make that determination, but you can examine yourselves to see if you are demonstrating fruit. Now, we need to be careful here. How much fruit's enough fruit? Is there some standard the Bible says you have to reach to, to know you're saved? No, First John just says, I write these things to you that you may know that you're saved. How do you know you're saved? I would say objectively, number one, you've trusted Christ for salvation. And based upon what the Bible says is true of you, you're saved. Number two, are you demonstrating evidence of salvation? Not perfection, not that you never sin, but there's a consistency of growth in your life that shows evidence to you and to others that know you well that you uh, truly are saved. Now, there are times where you will doubt your salvation. And I think those times that you doubt your salvation often come, I, in my experience in talking with people, and even in my own life, after you've committed a grievous sin, where you may have done something that you didn't think you would ever do, or you met a temptation that came out of the blue and you're like, man, I'm, I'm thankful I didn't give in to that temptation, but I was that close to doing it. Or you, you tripped up and, and committed a major sin. The immediate thought you have is, if I was truly a Christian, I would not have committed that sin. Okay, now let's just be realistic here. The most devout Christian who is justified, remember your justification can't change, you're, you're justified. If you are permanently justified, you can't lose your salvation. You can't lose that standing. But true Christians can commit grievous sins. I mean, think of just the biblical examples we have. Abraham, man of faith, lied twice and put his wife, Sarah, at risk. Okay, David committed adultery and murder. 
Peter denied Christ three times. So there's just three big names in the Bible who sin grievously. And so, yes, sinners can sin grievously. I mean, sinners, yeah, sinners can sin. Christians can, can sin grievously. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can ruin our testimony. Here's the point. If you're truly a Christian and you are walking in unrepentant sin for a long period of time with a hardened heart, you're truly saved, God as your Father will discipline you to bring you back to repentance. And that may be painful as he does that. Um, so that's kind of, I, I could go on and on about that, but just for the sake of time, maybe that would be just enough I'd want to say right now on assurance of salvation. Yeah, the, I don't know if I'd really add much other than I think sometimes we can get to be too navel-gazing, you know, where it's just like, am I really, really feeling like I'm I'm trusting in Jesus? Do I really, really, really feel like, I, you know, and you can get so navel-gazing that instead of looking at, at Christ, you're, le- you're looking at the degree and level of your faith. Um, and yeah, that's, that's a problem good too. Yeah, that's a good point because we need to distinguish between faith and faithfulness. And this is what the reformers and the Puritans made a huge point of. We are saved by faith, which means looking outside of yourself to Christ as your all-sufficient Savior. Faithfulness is how well you're doing in the Christian life. That's sanctification. You are not saved by your faithfulness. You're not justified by your faithfulness. And so we need to be very careful that we don't measure or or base our feelings or base things on how faithful we are, Uh, because there's going to always be somebody more faithful than you. So it's not your faithfulness that saves you. And it's not even really your faith that saves you. Faith's the instrument by which you're saved, but faith is still a gift. It's really the object of your faith. And that is Christ. Christ is stronger than the weakest amount of faith. So you can have a really weak faith and still be fully justified and saved because it's not the strength or the degree of intensity of your faith. It's who your faith is in, and that's Jesus, and he's a perfect Savior. Yeah, good. No, and I hope that for whoever asked that question, I think it's a common, I guess, uh, doubt that many Christians have and struggle with at different points in time. But the, this other question that I have is pretty closely related to the question that um, that you were talking about, which is, you know, just working through assurance of salvation. And this one's just more of a God uh, in the sense of how do I know God is real if I don't sense his presence or see evidence of it? So, you know, there might be, because that's one of the things with God, uh, we're told in John 4 that God is spirit. So knowing that God is spirit, we don't, it's kind of like, okay, we can't see him. So since I can't see him, taste him, touch him, or whatever, and engage with God with my five senses, then how do I know he's real? I think part of this has comes down to some worldview discussions in the sense of how it is that we receive truth. But even then, I do think that there is plenty of evidence for God. It's just a question of whether or not we're going to engage with truth. And just one thing to mention, Romans 12, 2 tells us to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed through the renewal of our mind. And one of our issues, I think, is we tend to look for a subjective sense of God rather than um, trying to be more objective about it and think through things carefully based upon Scripture and the world that we live in uh, to find whether or not uh, God exists or not. So 
a subjective sense of God based upon emotions is fleeting. Sometimes we're going to feel God's there right next to me. And other times we might not really sense God in our feelings anyway at all. So how might we then, uh, when we're having maybe those times, those downtimes where we're not really sensing God near and present, have evidence to know that God is, is there. Well, one of the few, I'm just going to mention a few things. Um, the first thing that comes to my, my mind is general revelation, looking to creation. You know, for example, Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. You know, I don't, I know that there's lots of arguments out there about evolution, but when you start looking at the stars, microbiology, the design of the eye, and, you know, you kind of even look at some of the evolutionary ideas of how those things somehow, I would say, miraculously came into being. It seems almost ridiculous that, you know, somebody could even think such things without believing that somebody designed and made them. So a lot of times I, I think of creation, just I get in awe of some of the things that God has made just that is in the natural world. The other thing, and I think the Psalms call us to do this quite often, is remember our history. Um, there's several Psalms that are out there. I'll just name them, 105 and 136, and, uh, and there's other ones as well, is the Psalmist is telling, is commanding us and remembering the history of Israel. And he kind of works through this history of Israel and how God has worked uh, in their history and how he's showed up at various times and there's a command to remember. And I think that's probably where some of this question is, is coming from, is that we forget God. Um, we forget to remember how he's worked in history, how he's worked um, in biblical history, and even in our history. Um, so, for example, how has God answered your prayers? How has God worked in your life? Sometimes we don't really go back and think, like, how that's worked. And if we're a Christian and have been for some time, we're going to know that God has answered our prayers and that he's worked in our life. And we should be able to go back in time and say, look, I, I have evidence for him. Maybe I don't feel him right now, but I can look back in my, my old life and in what he's done in biblical history and know that he exists and is, and is evident in that. The other thing is, I think it's, we need to pray, pray about it. You know, we should ask for assistance. I think I said, I remember there's, there's a scene in, in the gospels where and Jesus encounters this father whose desire is for his child to be healed. And he knows that Jesus is able to do that. And <laughs> Jesus is like, well, do you believe that I can do that? And the father's reply is, I believe, help my unbelief. And sometimes I think that's going to be our prayer. It's like, I, I know, but, but help me out here. I, I'm struggling with some unbelief right now. And, and I, I believe, but, but help me out. I, I, I'm having some moments of unbelief as well. But I think at the end of the day, we're going to have to ask ourselves um, a question, which is this, is my faith, um, is my idea, of, is my idea of God, is it based upon my feelings or truth? I think for the, for the Christian, the onus, the, the, the main thing that's emphasized is truth over feelings. You know, I, I have this conversation with, with youth all the time. It seems what a lot a lot of the conversations I have with youth, it, our feelings begin to trump our, what, what we know to be true, and we think that's the reality. So are we going to, in the Christian life, allow our feelings to dictate the truth for us, or are we going to have the truth shape our feelings? And I think a lot of our questions about the evidence of God is more based upon a, uh, a feeling rather than a, the truth of, that is out there, because I think God has made it very evident uh, in his word, 
in creation, in history, that of his existence, we just sometimes need to take a step back, be more objective about uh, how God has worked, and then we will see evidence for him all over the place. So hope that that, um, that answer encourages uh, our, my, my, my youth who did ask this question. Uh, anything you'd like to add, add to that? Yeah, I would, I would add a few things. That's a great job, Andrew. Um, I would say that the spirit of our age is to trust your heart, to follow your heart. Um, think of all the Disney movies and all of the songs. It's, so our, even adults, but young people are swimming in a culture of your heart and your self-expression and your right to be you trumps everything. And so there's no absolute truth claims. And so when you try to come in with the, an objective truth, sometimes people are really hard to, to grasp that when everything they base is on their feelings. So that, I think it's a good point. The other thing I would say is this, sometimes we want God to show up to us or be real to us, but like when we're alone and like, you know, private worship or, or whatever. And sometimes God does that, but I, I don't want us to get so into this privatized, individualized me and God alone that we forget to realize that God promises to show his manifest presence in the corporate gatherings on Sunday mornings in worship. Now, obviously right now we can't do that, but when God has promised to meet his people corporately. So if you're doubting God's existence or you don't sense God's presence, um, I would say the first thing to do is once the church is open back up, get back in church among God's people, where through the singing and the preaching of God's word, that's where God speaks in powerful ways corporately to his people. doesn't mean God can't um, meet you in your daily quiet time and God can't you know, do, do a work in your, your heart there, but there's something powerful about God's manifest presence of being in a worship service. I, I don't know, Andrew, how many times I've been in a service at Emmanuel or maybe somewhere where it just, we know God's omnipresent, he's everywhere present, but in special way, there's kind of what we call the manifest presence of God, where you can sense his, you know, abiding presence through the Holy Spirit there in corporate worship, maybe in a way that you could never experience it you know, individually. I don't know. I don't know what you'd have to say to that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think a lot of times I have that sense of the presence of God many times when I'm, when I'm not looking for it. Um, I, I do think that I, yeah, a good word about the corporate gathering, you know, that's a being around others that do believe can have a way of encouraging our own faith. I do. I do know, and this may be another conversation for another, another question. I do try to I guess I don't want to always be going to Sunday, Sunday morning worship, expecting, you know, God to give me some spiritual high. And, you know, early in my Christian walk, I kind of expected that now that I've been walking with the Lord for quite some years, I know that's not always going to happen. Um, but yes, fairly often I will have, uh, you know, uh, that, that sense of the manifest presence of God. I don't want to discount that because that I think that is important, but I don't want that to be the reason why I'm always coming to worship to kind of have this, I guess, supernatural high with, with God. So I guess I'm, I'm hearing you, but I remember my early, earlier struggle with that. Yeah, that's a good word because yeah, you don't go to church in order to get the spiritual high. If God shows up in power, that's his prerogative to do so. And he's not obligated to do it. Emmanuel practice what we call the ordinary means of grace in the life of our congregation. And so the ordinary means of grace are things like, okay, we have an opening scripture, we have songs, hymns, spiritual songs, we pray, we give tithes and offerings, 
uh, and central to the worship service is the preaching of God's word. And then once a month we have Lord's Supper. And so in those ordinary things, that's how God feeds us. And sometimes we, we don't get the, the liver shiver or we don't get the hair on the back of our, sometimes it's not exciting, but it's the way that God feeds us and sustains us just through those ordinary things. Sometimes God does something extraordinary in a service and, and, and we're surprised by that. Um, and maybe we should expect him to show up. But that's the reason we don't go to church is, you know, I know a lot of people that hop from experience to experience to get that, you know, spiritual high. And right. then, you know, whatever is the hottest thing in town or the hottest group or conference or church. And then, they, and then they're running on emotion as opposed to settling down. Saying, you know, for the most part, churches, I'm not saying it's boring, but it's ordinary. I mean, we're singing ordinary songs. We're ordinary people. It's a man standing up and preaching from the word. So um, these are things that God has promised to bless his people with, but they're not sensational. Um, and that's probably a, a question to ask for another time is, you know, like what, what is the ordinary means of grace in a, in a worship service and why do we do what we do? But we don't want to get off on that tangent because I think we've answered the four questions. Thank you for listening and watching this today. And if you, again, have any questions for us, please put that in the comments, both on YouTube and Facebook, so that we can address those next week. We are thankful for all the questions we're getting in. This has been exciting. When Andrew and I first started this, we weren't sure if we were going to get questions, but we've gone, I think, what's the three weeks in a row now, right. and we've had good questions. So, Andrew, do you have anything else you want to add before we close things down? Uh, no, it's just, this has been, um, I'm glad to hear some of these questions and it's, uh, yeah, it's been encouraging just to kind of, just to kind of hear and interact with some of these different uh, people that we've encountered and it's been, it's been fun. Well, why don't you close us in a word of prayer? Um, please, please, please pray for us as elders and leaders at Emmanuel as we pray through the timing on how to reopen Emmanuel as in the near future, many churches will be reopening we do not have a date for that. It all depends upon some things related to our local government, but we definitely need wisdom to do it in the right way, in the right time, and with the right attitude. So, Andrew, would you close us in a word of prayer? Sure. Uh, Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this uh, opportunity to answer some questions, some of these questions that have that we've received, and and God, I do pray uh, that people's faith um, is assured, uh, not on the basis of what you have. Have done for us and Jesus I do thank you that you have were righteous for us um, God I do pray for us as a church family that you give us wisdom as we try to figure out what it looks like for us to meet together again uh, give us uh, give us wisdom uh, it is a daunting task and decision that is uh, before us I do pray that you uh, make it clear to us what it is that uh, we are going to do uh, Lord I do pray that you call many fears uh, of, of people that people may have when it comes towards uh, meeting together again God, help us to know that we are to be a people that trust in you uh, more, more than anything, anything else. Jesus, we ask this all in your name. Amen.